When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Hey there, welcome to yet another episode of Strange Planet. Glad you're aboard. Thanks for sticking me in your ear. The famous Roswell incident is, in the perspective of many, the origin of what we have come to know as the UFO phenomenon in recent times. Roswell was indeed a major turning point in terms of public awareness as well as government involvement, at least in the USA, but it didn't start at Roswell. The public view of UFOs beginning in 1947 is merely a continuation of long-standing phenomenological patterns. An abundance of historical UFO sightings exist from long before Roswell, working back through the centuries into antiquity and beyond, citing 364 separate cases. My guest tonight and her co-author show that anomalous phenomena is as enduring through the ages, more witnessed and reported or more discussed and debated than the UFO phenomenon. My guest is the co-author Barbara DeLong describes herself as free spirit. She's a spiritual empath. She is the host of a radio program called Nightlight, and she is co-author of a brand new book called Before Roswell, The Secret History of UFOs, along with Ken Goodsword, who uh, was on the program recently. Barbara DeLong, welcome. How are you? I am terrific. Thanks so much for having me on. My understanding is that you cracked open your late husband's UFO files, and that kind of formed, I guess, the basis of this book. Tell me about your late husband, Patrick Cook. Well, Patrick was um, well-known in the UFO community. As a matter of fact, his website, uh, the Bible UFO Connection, was probably one of the biggest and first ones out there. He was burned in effigy in many different places, so he felt that you know he had definitely hit the peak of his career. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and uh, even you know many people like Giorgio and and uh, a lot of the other people out there have used his material to sort of base a lot of their things on. He died over ten years ago, and I became the caretaker of his work. And when I realized his, I couldn't keep his website and my website up at the same time. I made sure that everything that had been on his website was either in one of his three books, or I took it and I put it onto my website. 
And uh, there were only two areas that, that I transferred over. One was the UFO and the other was the material on giants. And uh, I, I've had a UFO experience, so it, it felt like I could, I could certainly honor his material. And it's been on my website for the last 10 years. Um, I certainly have been through it myself. But when Ken got a hold of me and we started looking at it, it was a little antiquity. You know, it, it hadn't been added to in 10 years. So Ken added stuff and I added stuff. And I'm sure Patrick will, you know, be ple- would be pleased. You know, if he's not, then he can tell me it's, you know, it's fine with me. But um, it, it's, it was an exciting adventure when Ken said, you know, let's do something with it. So I, I decided to, you know, dig into it. And certainly I've read through the material often, but never to a point of having to speak with great authority on it. So um, I will do my very best. Most of, most of the articles are, I, the, the more I read through it, the more fascinated I become with the articles that have been out there. And there's still more probably that we could add. At least there's one that if you have time, I, I'd like to sort of throw in there. And those are the Dropa stones in China. Um, Let me just jump in because you mentioned uh, Giorgio Tsoukalos uh, from, uh, because Patrick was um, very early on a part of ancient aliens. With, and so people- He ran with that crowd, yes. Yes, he will be known to, uh, to fans of ancient aliens. All right, so um, you mentioned your UFO experience. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Um, it's 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 really now a pleasure to talk about it. I have been accused of being drunk in college so many times now that it's not funny, but I was in college. It was 66, and that was when the UFO sightings were, were rampant all over the place, and, and J. Allen Hynek was going all over the place calling everything swamp gas. But in 66, there was an event that happened on my campus that has been authenticated as an actual sighting. Um, they locked they locked the doors of the of the girls' dorms at eleven o'clock, which never any, n- nobody ever understood that because we certainly could get in trouble well before eleven o'clock. But the doors were locked, <clears throat> and between my dorm and the baseball field, there was a there was a large building, and at about. I guess it was a few minutes to 11 o'clock. There was, we had radios on those days. You didn't have a TV. There was one in the dorm, but mostly we listened to the radio and there was a news flash. And they said that a UFO had been sighted near uh, um, Eastern Michigan's campus and that they had stopped the air traffic to all three of the airports in the area. And so at that point we started to hear sirens and we looked out the windows, and indeed, there were police cars rushing past us with sirens blaring and lights flashing, you know, just, just the right way to approach a UFO. And we could hear on the radios them saying, we're going to turn the stadium lights on to get a better view. And we could see the glow in the sky as the stadium lights went on, at which point we saw a, a saucer slowly rise up. Um, and it's it's swooped over my dorm so that for a, a brief moment in time, 
all we could see when we looked up was this was this saucer. I've frequently said if it had had a VIN number, I probably could have read it. It was it was only a couple hundred feet above us, and it hovered there, which it felt like forever, but it wasn't. And then suddenly went, and it was gone. There was no noise, no air displacement, no breaking the sound barrier. Uh, people around me were screaming, were, were running, were hiding under beds and in closets, which I never understood. Um, and there were a few of us that actually saw it. And yet two of the people standing right next to me didn't see a thing. And it kind of reminded me of, uh, in retrospect, of close encounters of a third kind where at the very end they're shoving can't remember who the actor was, but they're shoving him in line to go along with the uh, other travelers into the UFO. And people were saying he hasn't been trained. He hasn't been trained. And somebody said, but he was invited. And that's, that's what I felt like. It was sort of like I wasn't invited to go along, but I was invited to understand and invited to not be frightened and invited to follow my curiosity. This and is the University of Michigan. Eastern uh, Michigan. Eastern yeah. Michigan. And this case, the, the Air Force sent Dr. J. Allen Hynek to investigate, right? He did. And um, he said it was swamp gas. It's only in retrospect that it was, it was you know, credited with being one of the um, authenticated sightings. And so we waited breathlessly for midnight to hear the news of what, what, what it had been. And uh, there was nothing on the news, absolutely nothing. So we would look out the windows and see that our campus was being patrolled by pairs of policemen with, with, door, with dogs. And the next day, nothing. Uh, we had, uh, I was student teaching at the time and the woman I was student teaching with, her husband was in the Air Force. And she said she, she knew nothing of it. It was, it was amazing. I called my mother and told, and before they would put the call through, those were days when you had to place person to person calls. Um, and she talked to a friend of hers who, who happened to be the publisher of the local newspaper. So my report was in the local newspaper, but that's, that's the only place I knew of for many, many years. And apparently there were other reports of it, but I never saw any of them. And, and of course, between then and about 14 years ago, I, I have been teased mercifully by by everyone like, you know, you say you don't drink. Well, you know, this is the best story we've ever heard. And when uh, somebody published a book called In Focus, In Focus, which was about authenticated UFOs, um, my, my sighting was in there. And I immediately bought 15 of the books and gave them to everybody I knew that it teased me with, ha, see, it really did happen. So uh, it was, it was, exciting it was you know it, it was almost like uh, coming to the opening of something because i i really think in many ways it set me on the pathway i'm on today how could it not how could it not i mean you, 1966 uh i believe was also the year there was another uh, um preston dennett has written an entire volume just dedicated to ufos on school and college campuses and the the, the uh, your 
uh, UFO incident was in the book, certainly. And also 1966, there was uh, Westall, Westall College in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, the UFOs definitely have um, a keen interest in, um, in revealing themselves to primary school students, high school students, college students. Um, let's get back to sort of the, the premise of the book before Roswell, the secret history of UFOs, the idea that, you know, it didn't be begin and end with 1947 and, and, and Roswell. Uh, although Roswell, I mean, 1947, there was a, just a, a complete hysteria with regards to UFOs beginning prior to 40, prior to Roswell with the Kenneth Arnold sightings, mm -hmm. uh, after Roswell, um, but you, you point out in the book, something like uh, 13,000 years we can go back. Oh, uh, 13,000 years ago with recorded UFO sightings beginning in France, right? Let's talk about that. Well, those are the caves in France that have the, um, the, the, the pictographs of, and it's an, it's an actual UFO. And it's, I think, I, think I, I, I sent you a, a, a tremendous list of um, of. You asked for a few talking points. I sent you 14 pages. Uh, but at 45,000 BC, China has rock carvings of a, of a UFO. So it goes back that far. And I, they've been with us forever. I think they've been, frankly, I think they may have been cruising the planet before humanity came here. Hmm. Amazing. Um 33 sightings have been documented. That's it? 33? Now, when we say documented, because obviously there have been, I don't know, tens of thousands, maybe more, UF, reported UFO sightings. If we go to, for example, the National UFO Reporting Center and Peter Davenport's work, but when you say 33 sightings have been documented, what does that mean? It means that there were reports of them, that they were in newspapers, or they were um, something that you know, newspapers had put out there uh, 30 and during 47 there were 33 that, that we could find it doesn't mean that's all there were uh, and and to be honest I think both Ken and I accepted the 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 foundation that Patrick had given us we added we added several that uh, we thought was were you know really important uh, like operation high jump which came after, uh, no, it was before Roswell. And so it, it's, there were things that, that, that have come out now, and it's been something that the government just hasn't been honest about and open about, and it's too bad, because I think we probably would be in a better place had we put it out there so everybody knew about it. And it's it, to this point in time, people see a UFO and they say, oh, that's a UFO. And in reality, anything you can't explain is a UFO. It doesn't mean there are little green men in it. It just means you don't know what it is. But there have been saucers and there have been uh, lights in the sky and orbs and all sorts of things that, that do allude to the fact that there is uh, another intelligence that is watching us and they're not waiting till we get fat enough to eat. They certainly, if they were going to take over the planet and re-terraform it, they could have done it over many thousands of years and haven't. 
my personal belief system is they're watching us till a level of consciousness has uh, we have arisen to so that we have at least peace on the planet. And once the planet is a peaceful planet, then I do believe we may be invited into another level of consciousness exploring the universe. But until then, I think we're much too um, barbaric. <laughs> uh, I have to ask you, because I've missed the uh, the anniversary, and I had people emailing me and, and um, texting me and so forth. Oh, you have to talk about, because it was, I think, February 24th. Uh, so we just passed the, what what is that, 80, 84 years ago, the anniversary of the battle over Los Angeles. Um, oh, yes. So I'm, I know I'm late on the anniversary and people want to hear about it, but um, let's talk about the battle of Los Angeles, which, you know, obviously after Pearl Harbor, which had occurred just three months earlier, the, the United States was on very high alert, uh, yeah. expecting some kind of an attack from Imperial Japan. In fact, they did, um, when when we had that recent incursion of um, spy balloons from, from China, or a spy balloon, the others we don't know yet yeah. what they were, um, but that was very reminiscent of, of what Japan uh, did during the Second World War. They sent huge um, balloons over the West Coast. Uh, they had detonation devices. There were people actually killed, I think in Oregon, um, one of these landed and exploded and, and killed um, a family uh, that were out picnicking. Anyway, so the Battle of Los Angeles, February 1942, kind of set the scene and tell us what happened. Well, they, uh, they, they detected um, airplanes, they thought, coming from the ocean, assuming that they were, uh, assuming that they were Japanese. They called an all-out blackout. Sirens were were uh, blaring all over the place. Um, I think, uh, actually, I can give you a secondhand explanation of it because uh, before Patrick passed away, we had a man who was a child at that time living in um, Los Angeles, and he witnessed the whole thing. And he said that uh, he was he, he was fascinating. He said that instead of people hiding and looking for shelter, they were out in the streets watching these lights as they came overhead. And there were spotlights. They, they lit up spotlights and they high, they shone them at, at at least um, one of them, at least the one that he talked about. And he was fascinated with the fact that our, our batteries on the beaches were firing at it, but they were exploding before they actually hit the target. So that there must have been some sort of a shield that was that was um, protecting uh, this object. It moved very slowly. It wasn't, you know, it didn't zip by. And and I don't know if there were more than one. Some people say there were, and some people say there weren't. So, but he saw one particular that was fascinating to him, and he saw shrapnel falling. Um, and the shrapnel was from our armaments that were bouncing off of this particular object. There were actually uh, there were actually uh, casualties because of it, but it was because of our armaments falling on them and killing people. Not so much that they weren't shooting back. They there was there were planes in the air that were shooting at them, and the next day. Um, all, all of the kids went to the beach and he was one of them and they were paid for any shrapnel they picked up 
the the army wanted to make sure that they pervert, preserved all of it. And there was he he said he made a, a nice a nice bit of money considering his age and the time, but uh, they they never they never got where they came from. They left as peacefully and quietly as they came, and it it was a long time before people realized that this wasn't Japanese and it wasn't ours. And then again, the question, who was it? And it was large enough so that they had planes going against it and everything so that it obviously, I don't think, I don't, I don't recall him saying how large it was, but if airplanes were shooting at it and the bombs were bouncing off a shield, it must've been large enough to hold a great many people or occupants. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Occupants. <laughs> All right, let's take a time out, Barbara. Before Roswell, the secret history of UFOs. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Barbara DeLong is with us, and uh, she has co-authored a book along with Ken Good's Word. The book is Before Roswell, The Secret History of UFOs, uh, with some assistance from her late husband, Patrick Cook, who will be familiar with uh, all of you ancient alien fans. He was certainly a big part of that program early on. Let's talk about prior to 1942, people tend to think, oh, UFO sightings, uh, they only seem to happen in the United States. Why mm. is that? Uh, not true. I mean, we talked about the, the cave paintings in France, but I mean, you know, wh where do we even dive in? Let's, let's go all the way back to like, you know, early, early turn of the century. How about Arola, Switzerland, 1896? And uh, look who it is, Aleister Crowley. Yes. Yes, I, it's it's fascinating. He actually was uh, on a mountain trip, and he met a person who he, you know, said hello to or whatever, and they didn't respond to him. Um, but he's not the only one. I I think what fascinated me is I every time I read through, I catch something new. Alistair Crawley saw one or two times. Nicholas Rorick, um, who was a very famous uh, artist. And and uh, well, artist. Uh, he's I, he's my favorite artist. He apparently had uh, two sightings when he was in the Himalayas, uh, and and it's 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 almost as though just about everybody had one. Um, Haley, the Haley comic guy, uh, he had two um, instances where he saw uh, UFOs, and and he recorded them. Uh, you you almost stumble over people, Christopher Columbus, um, and that was a, that was a unidentified sea one. You know, it came out of the water, right? And he and one of his uh, shipmates saw it, and he recorded it in his uh, in his diaries. 
I just, you know, it, it, it blew my mind, the, the numbers of people that have seen them and recorded them. And I think it, it, it took somebody like Patrick or, or similar to gather all of this together to show, um, you know, exactly, you know, how many there are and how often they, they occurred and how frequently they were written down and people, you know, while they may have been in the newspaper, they, they, it was just a casual thing. And, you know, you know, and then, you know, there were 50 cows that got loose in Farmer Brown's field, you know, and, but I think, the most fun, the one that, that that I am, the piece of trivia that I will I will hold forever in my heart, um, is that the first pilot to actually shoot down a UFO. Do tell. Was the Red Baron in Germany? Oh, get out of town! I didn't know that. He was the very first one to shoot one down. Um, it landed. It crash landed. And um, the pilot survived, got out and ran into the woods and was never heard from again. But that is the very first sight. That is the very first time um, in history that I have found that, that, that a UFO was shot down by a pilot. I had no idea. Isn't that a cool piece of trivia? <laughs> that might be the coolest piece of trivia I have heard in a very, very long time. <laughs> Let's stick with World War One. Okay. Gallipoli, Turkey, British Army Regiment, 1st, 4th, Norfolk. Oh, those 800 men. They disappeared. Was that it? Yeah, the 800 man, men that marched into the fog and never returned? Yes. I couldn't believe that either. The whole, the whole platoon, 800 of them marched into this strange fog, and the fog lifted, and they were gone. And at the end of the war, um, they asked for the return of the prisoners, and they didn't know what anybody was talking about. Never heard from again. So no trace of the regiment has ever been found. 800 of them. They were trying to take something called Hill 60. Again, this is in Gallipoli, Turkey, a very famous battle during World War I. And, I mean, this, this was done. I mean, there were witnesses that reported back, right? There were something like 22 witnesses who said, no, we saw 800 of them march into the fog, and that's it. Never came back. And, and the other part that, that was fascinating was there was no sound of conflict. There was no sound of, you know, battle of any sort. They just marched into the fog as though they were going to lunch. And fog lifted and they were gone as well. So, I mean, that could have been a UFO. It could have been a time slip. Um... It, yeah, it could have been a lot of things. But... Um, I, it's in, to me, it was interdimensional. It was almost as though a portal was opening up and they right. marched into the portal. Right. And when the fog cleared, the portal was gone, and so were they. I, I can't imagine that 800 spirits were killed. I would imagine that, that they went somewhere, whether it's another dimension or, or what, because... You know, there are a couple of places like that. Um, the uh, the Bosnian pyramids, are you familiar with those? Yes, I am, yes. Um, Sam, um, Sam, Dr. Sam, I can't pronounce his last name, so I'll just stick with Sam. Um, <laughs> he's been on the show a number of times. And in, in the tunnels that he has been excavating, they found uh, a number of stones that were of a, they were ceramic. And when they moved them, um, 
and came back the next day, the tunnels were flooded, so they moved them back. On one of the uh, rocks, one of these ceramic rocks, there were what appeared to be glyphs. They weren't hieroglyphs, but they were glyphs. And when they were interpreted finally, uh, it basically said that we've closed the tunnels um, and we will remain here and we will defend this place um, until the Stargate opens. The Stargate. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I just, I had to remind myself, it's because um, years ago I had uh, Dr. Sa Sam Osmanagich. Yeah. Um, he's still with us? He's still around? He's still around. I've had him on the show a number of times, and he's my most favorite, one of my most favorite interviews, because I prepped for his show like you wouldn't believe. I introduced him. He said, thank you. And... I asked him one question, and for two straight hours, he interviewed himself. <laughs> and Barbara, you would ask, and this is why. And he just, I, I could have baked cookies, folded laundry, and taken a bath. It was, you know, I had to interrupt him and the show. <laughs> I, yeah, it's been years since I've, um, I've had him on. I'll have to get him back on. Thank you for reminding me about him. Um. Let's talk about, well, let me ask you, because you mentioned interdimensionals. Is that what you think uh, we're dealing with here, interdimensionals versus extraterrestrials? Um, if, it, if it weren't for um, the Rendlesham Forest event, I might have said, yeah. Um, I had on Jim Penniston, the one of the the guy that touched the what mm -hmm. uh, the it, downloads it, of ones and zeros yeah yeah it it, it was um, he was downloaded with the binary code it was a number of years later that he showed it to Linda Moton Howe and they interpreted it and basically it said the human condition basically and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me but basically it said it, it gave the latitude and longitude of a, a lot of the sacred sites that are, that are around the country but it also said basically the human condition worth um, continuing obser observing. Date of origin, 8100. So, and at first I thought, isn't that great? Um, we're still around, you know, in 8100. And then it occurred to me that that wasn't necessarily from humans, but it was somebody who knew how to use binary code. So, I'm not sure who is reviewing us in 8100 and sending something through time, but you know that certainly is, is an occurrence where the drone was here to gather information and it managed to gather it and then go back to wherever it originated from. The time travel hypothesis, perhaps. Yeah. They are yeah. us. <laughs> well, are they? Or are they another consciousness that is able to communicate with binary code. Your guess as good as mine. Well, it's, it's interesting because um, in some of the crop circles, there, there was a, a um, the crop circle was a representation of a, a gray, and then there was a circle with binary code in it. And um, I'm not sure what it said, but I, I do know that the, some of the things that we have sent out into space that had 
information on us and where we are and what we look like and all of that have been replicated in crop circles, but with a different origin and, and a different shape of person. Uh, so that it, it's it's sort of like maybe we've maybe we've set something somewhere where it was understood and isn't it wonderful, or we have just put where we live out to the universe and anybody can come and get us and take the planet. So, you know, it's, it's could be one or the other. All right, Barbara, we are going to uh, slip away here just for a moment and we'll come back and continue to talk about uh, UFOs before Roswell, the secret history back with more in a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. And we are back with Barbara DeLong. And uh, the book is Before Roswell, The Secret History of UFOs, co-authored by Ken Goodsword, who's been uh, recently on the, uh, on the podcast talking about the Fermi Paradox. That was a great conversation. Um, tell us about the, um, uh, the, the program, Nightlight Radio, um, because we, are, we have a, a mutual colleague, friend, Mark, <laughs> Ed, Mark Eddy, who's uh, heard on the program quite frequently. Yes. Tell me about how, what it's about, how we can listen, and so forth. Uh, Nightlight Radio is on Blog Talk Radio, and uh, it also then goes up onto YouTube so that it is carried all over the place. That's uh, YouTube is probably the best way to find us. I started it uh, 14 years ago, and uh, I, I started it with the intention of it, it being a light in the darkness for people who were searching, and it... Uh, it's been an interesting evolution uh, over five years. Well, I've known Mark for a very long time, and, and he's been on a number of different radio shows. And when he last became available about five years ago, I, I said, you know, stop jumping around show to show to show. I'll give you a show. Come, come over to Nightlight. I'll give you a show. You can, you know, within reason, do anything you want. I had to say within reason because he can be strange sometimes. And, uh, <laughs> and um, he, uh, he came over and I said, you know, I'll do all the techie work. I'll do everything. You just turn up with your guest and, you know, we'll have it whenever you want to. And uh, I said, but, but I will absolutely with no shame um, pump you for every resource you've got. And He's been charming and he's connected me with tons of wonderful people and has been a pleasure to work with. He's, um, he's the one that has taken on the, the chore of finding places for me to talk about the book. And I finally, both Ken and I had to say, you know, cease and desist. We do have lives. Um, he's persistent. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but it's been, he's, he's uh, been a great partner in crime. And uh, I thoroughly have enjoyed having him have his show on Nightlight Radio. A uh, number of other people have shows that are, are broadcast off of Nightlight. It's gotten a lot bigger than I anticipated ever. Um, and it's been very exciting. 
Yeah, Mark is um, an interesting character. He has uh, turned me on to so many different uh, people, guests that have been on this podcast that uh, were on my former late night syndicated radio program. And then some of them have gone on to join me on, on Coast to Coast. Um, so back to before Roswell. Uh, before we had, you know, bright lights in the sky or cigar-shaped discs or flying discs, there was, a, there was a period, late 19th, early 20th century, when there were thousands of reports, not just in the United States, but across Europe, and what they were describing uh, were, well, they looked like blimps or what we call dirigibles. Tell me about those. Yeah, 1887, 89 in that time frame, I think. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating time. The reports are are are, are just, I, they blew me away because when I started reading through them, I said, well, these aren't flying saucers, but they are unidentified flying objects. And the most exciting part of it all was, bless you, Thank was you. 88, 89. And in that time frame, they they were blimps. It sounds like they were blimps, but but dirigibles weren't really used. You know, they they weren't out there that much. Or nineteen ten is about when the dirigibles really became a part of our culture. And what fascinates me is that in several cases, they they would throw um, an anchor over the side that would get caught on something, and someone would have to climb down from the airship to unfeather it. And in a couple of cases, whoever climbed down suffocated. I mean, it's what the newspaper article said, suffocated in the atmosphere. Uh, there were a couple of other places where people came down and were speaking in a language that was not English, and so they weren't understood. And then there were others in which they offered people a ride. So I, I don't really understand exact I mean there were also UFOs but the the dirigibles were in that time frame and it was it was fascinating um I think the one that that fascinated me the most was in Aurora um Kansas Aurora Texas Texas oh Aurora Aurora yes because there's Aurora Switzerland but there's Aurora Texas yes and it flew into a windmill and took it down and they tried to fix it, and it, it it wasn't fixable, but they tried to take off again, and it crashed. And there were, um, they thought originally that there were five inhabitants, um, but they only found one body when it crashed and burned. And the people of the community uh, gathered up the body, and um, they had a funeral for it. It was a very little little person. And they had a, a funeral for this uh, passenger or whatever. And he was buried in the local cemetery, but without a headstone. And um, the UFO people, many years later, decades later, uh, wanted to dig him up. And the people in Aurora would not tell them where the, where the grave was. They felt that the inhabitants should rest in peace. It's a great chapter in uh, UFO history. Oh, yeah. Um, I have I have a particular interest in this next one because my father, my late father, who was a Second World War veteran, mm -hmm. um, he was in the uh, in an armored regiment out of Winnipeg, which was called Fort Gary at the time, and he 
He was a, a tank gunner and helped liberate Holland during the Second World War. But prior to the D-Day landing, he trained in Aldershot, England. And uh, there's kind of a unique, well, they're all unique. <laughs> they're all unique? No, that's not right. It's a, it's a fascinating chapter, nonetheless. It takes place like 1880 in Aldershot, England. Uh, and this is not just, you know, someone seeing a flashing light in the sky. This is like a, a close encounter with an actual being or beings. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Well, yeah, it's a huge book and I'm asking you to pull up this. Um, these were, uh, be, uh, a being that was witnessed, uh, in tight fitting clothes. Remember this is 1880. Yeah. Tight fitting clothes, a shining helmet. And it soared over the head of two sentries, and uh, they fired on it without any result. The blue light. Yeah, but this is this is um, it's an entity. It doesn't as appear as if it was flying inside a ship. It was a being that was like it had a jetpack or something. I don't know. But what's interesting is the language that the witness witnesses described it. I mean, again, we're talking about 1880. A shiny helmet, tight fitting clothes. Um, anyway, it's obviously it stunned the guards and, uh, you're right. It, it was described as a blue fire, but it, this was an entity, uh, that, that flew over their heads. 1880. Uh, absolutely amazing. These are cases I've never heard before. And you're, um, you and your late husband did a remarkable job and can Goodsword in bringing yeah. these to our attention. Do you have a famous or a favorite, a favorite pre Roswell sighting? Oh gosh, I have so many of them. I think one of the ones that that fascinated me was that um, actually um, Kenneth Arnold was not the first to call them um, flying saucers. Um, in 1180, 1180 in Japan, there was a sighting, and it was described as um, as flying um, flying earthware vessel. It was a flying earthware vessel. So 700 years before Kenneth Arnold said that, you know, there it is. And I, I just, I know that they've been around for a long time. And I had no idea that, I mean, you want to take it all the way back, you can take it back 45,000 years. They've been around, at least they've been around long enough for us to record them, but probably a lot longer before then. So that, uh, and, and they are described as, as, like us as far as you know head arms legs that's that stuff but but not exactly in some cases though the people that saw them thought that they were humanistic some some did describe the fact that they had on skin tight uh uniforms and and um large eyes and you know they they described what one would probably call a gray but you know people back then it, it they they would describe things from their frame of reference. So depending on how far back you go, um, yeah, you know, Da Vinci painted a UFO and an alien into at least one of his paintings. So that I, I think what what hit me was that you can take it so far back that there are are things out there that do describe um, these these occurrences. So that, and a lot of times though, they have, they have explosions like the Tus uh, Tuskegee, the one in Russia, 
Yes. I, I want to say Tuskegee, and that's not the right one, but it's not the right word, I don't think. It was in Russia. One exploded and wiped out trees and... and oh, Tunguska. Yes, Tunguska in you. Siberia. Yes, 1908. And it just, it it created such a... It, it was not a meteor strike because there was no uh, cavity or anything. And they they kind of thought that perhaps that it had been a, a, a nuclear explosion of some sort or a ship that exploded and, you know, just. Right. Someone attributed to Nikola Tesla's death ray. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would love to be around now. Uh, oh, I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, as you say, um, we have sightings going back all the way prior to even um, well, biblical times into the, uh, the distant, distant past. And it only took the New York Times um, 45,000 years, 2017. <laughs> they finally started to take it seriously in uh, December of 2017. Wow, um, fantastic uh, work, uh, Barbara, and also to Ken Goodsword for putting this together. Before Roswell, The Secret History of UFOs. It's such a wonderful, um, you know, documentation of all of these remarkable cases, many of which I'm not familiar with. Uh, and I, and I know people are going to enjoy it. How do we get a copy? Uh, it's on Amazon. I do believe, um, that's the only place where, where I know of, I, I think Ken, uh, it, Ken is the publisher. So you may be able to get it through him, but I would suggest most probably, uh, Amazon is the best place to go. All right. And again, uh, Nightlight Radio, you can catch it on, uh, on YouTube. Thank you so much, Barbara. Great to speak with you. Thank you. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 